Hello, I'm Stuart Thomas. And I'm Tony Cosgrove. Together, we're on a journey to better understand a topic we have no knowledge of, but are fascinated by, human connection. To help us learn more, we'll be chatting with a wide variety of guests from around the world. From authors to healthcare professionals, community groups to psychologists, asking them to share their unique insights with us. At the end of our quest, we hope to have gathered together all of the ingredients that make up human connection to turn them into actionable and practical insights for you listening. Today, we're delighted to be talking to someone who has studied communities for over 10 years and is now teaching the rest of us how they work. He writes a weekly newsletter on community, business and personal growth, was previously the co-founder of CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and his book, The Business of Belonging, has sold over 10,000 copies and is kept on the desks of community builders everywhere. David Spinks, blogger, author, community builder, welcome to the Human Connection Journey podcast. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Stuart. Happy to be here. So, David, at the start of every conversation, it's important for us to say that we are students with a thirst for knowledge. We came across Human Connection, loved what we read, and set out to learn more. Therefore, to get us started, we have three questions we'd like to ask you. The first is, tell us what the term human connection means to you. Yeah, it's a big question with, I think, a big answer. I don't think it's simple at all. When I think of human connection, my brain goes in a thousand different directions. It goes into macro connection, macro sociology. You know, why do societies form? How does language form? Why do mobs form? Uh, how do economies work, right? Just all the different factors of how humans exist together. And then you get into the micro sociology of what does smiling at somebody do to their brain chemistry? How does eye contact affect the conversation? How do you welcome people into a new space? How do you build relationships to people? Why are some people popular and likable? So I think human connection is, it's really everything. But would you have a, a standard definition? Human connection is, and then you have a set of words that would define it before you then go on and give a more detailed uh, overview. Uh, I think it would just be a simplified version of what I said, right? It's something like human connections, the combination of macro and micro forms of interaction amongst humans. Got it. And David, you must be out and about talking to people all the time. And, you know, a thousand times you must have had this conversation. Have you seen a time where people have gone, I've got that? Or does it tend to creep up on people quite slowly because it is quite a complex, multi-layered thing? I've got it in that they understand what human connection is. Yeah, exactly. No, nobody ever truly understands it, right? It's, it's like, you know, when I explore it in my career, it's been a lot around community specifically, which I think is a subset of the larger category of human connection. I also look at belonging. More recently, I've been kind of on a similar student journey as you really exploring different forms of human connection and trying to understand loneliness in more depth. And the more I learn, the more I realize just how little I know and how complex it is. I mean, even on something as simple as like serendipity, I recently wrote an article trying to understand that. And I read a whole bunch of research papers on it. And every single one has a slightly different approach and different language and different understanding of it. So, you know, we're dealing with the social sciences here. There's no way of proving our thesis and having a repeatable experiment that will turn out the same results like you do in physics or math, right? This is a social science. It's unprovable. And that just makes it that much more 
complex because there are no answers. It's physically impossible for us to have a full 100% true answer to the questions of human connection. And so all we could do is essentially take guesses and form hypotheses and test out those hypotheses in the world and form our own definitions and understandings of what's happening. Yeah, I think that, that that's been something I've been trying to get my head around because I I used to be a scientist. I spent 15 years in science before I came into comms. I worked for the government and I work in private industry mm. and I'm married to a mathematician. So mm -hmm. I'm very comfortable with equations, you know, and X plus Y over Z equals two. Uh, we can work with that. But that kind of ambiguity, I, I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword because there is a bit of a gray area, but also it allows people to come into the conversation and bring their own experiences. I think that's really important that for me, I'm kind of learning that more and more that this is kind of hidden in plain sight. It's one of those things mm -hmm. that is, is relevant to lots of people and lots of people have views of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, there, there's some, you know, you'll see experiments run like on what influences people to take certain actions, what influences people to lie, what impact does introducing financial rewards have on an interaction or a transaction. Right. Like one of my favorite ones that I heard was in Dan Ariely's book, Predictably Irrational, where they ran an experiment with lawyers and were trying to understand what influence introducing financial incentives would have on people helping people. So they offered this group of lawyers an opportunity to work with a group of clients. And for the first group of lawyers, they offered no compensation at all. It was 100% pro bono. The second group, they offered a small compensation that was much lower than their usual rate. And the number of lawyers who accepted the project without any payment was higher than the lawyers who accepted it with small payment, which counters a lot of what we think with supply and demand and, and economics. And that's because it's irrational, right? That's Dan Ariely's whole point. We're irrational in that way. But what happened there is it switched the interaction from a social norm to a market norm. Instead of a lawyer helping somebody like doing right for another human, as soon as you introduce money, it switches it to a market norm in their brain, and all of a sudden they're less likely to want to accept those um, those jobs. And so you can run experiments like that. There's a famous marshmallow test with kids and their ability to delay gratification. So we have these like ways of get, getting some directional understanding of what influences people to make the decisions that we make and how we interact with each other, but it's never going to be one plus one equals two, right? It's never going to be repeatable. The numbers may always be different. It's just uh, kind of honing in on some level of understanding. Is it fair to say, David, that understanding all those complexities and putting those just to one side for a moment, that as human beings, we are kind of born, if you like, to connect for a whole bunch of reasons, whether it's survival in the first instance or whether it's for, for love and whatever else. So even though it is complex, do you feel that it's kind of in our DNA? I think so. From what I've read and understood, you know, it's arguably why Homo sapiens outlasted the other human species. It was literally our ability to form large groups. We weren't as smart and we weren't as strong or big, but we had larger groups. And there's a number of reasons why we believe we formed larger groups and other human species weren't able to. But from a pure evolutionary standpoint, it's literally why humans exist today in the form that we do. It's because of our ability to form groups. 
And then we also know, like I mentioned earlier, that things like eye contact can release dopamine in the brain, right? Uh, we know that human interaction has positive impacts on the human body. And now we're seeing these studies that are proving the negative impacts that loneliness has on our health, on our well-being. We've all seen the headlines of loneliness is worse for you than a pack of cigarettes a week or obesity. Right. And so I think the biological impact that human connection or lack of human connection has is pretty good evidence that we're, we are wired this way. And our ability to connect with each other is certainly a predictor of happiness and well-being. Yeah. Going back to what you said about Dan Arelli there and that economic model around the lawyers, I think there's a, a bit of a mm -hmm. golden thread here around the behavior that Dan Arelli finds is only irrational if you're an economist and you think of everything in terms of maximizing your short term, call it cash, call it resources or whatever. And same with the biology, you know, it's only unusual to think that we're successful at, because we form groups if you think of everything in terms of more muscle is better. But if you think like a lot of species, like chimpanzees, it's not the strongest chimpanzee that leads the troop. It's the chimpanzee that's best at connecting with the other people in the troop so they can build alliances and they can get stuff done. I think it's only when you look at it through a single lens that human connection doesn't make sense. When you look at it through lots of lenses at once, I think that's when it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, we're we're not rational <laughs> beings. When you're dealing with understanding human connection, we're trying to take a rational scientific-based approach to understanding something that's irrational, that's mm -hmm. highly emotional, that's highly spiritual. I'm reading a great book called Cultish right now, all about cults and like what motivates people to join cults and how they find themselves in those situations and the impact of this book specifically about the language that cults use in order to indoctrinate people. And it's fascinating, you know, we are influenceable, right? There are things that tend to work time and time again when working with humans, but a lot of the rational scientific approach to understanding cause and effect kind of falls short when you're dealing with human beings that are coming from completely different backgrounds and completely different perspectives and have different motivations for doing things that may seem irrational based on your system, but to them, their history of understanding the world, the traumas in their life, the things that bring them joy, their belief systems, all of these things contribute to why they make a decision. I think we see that at work, Stuart, don't we? David Stuart and I, we probably spend the majority of our time going in and out of other people's workplaces and understanding their businesses through our internal comms work. I don't know if you'd agree with me, Stuart, but I think the people I've seen the most frustrated are often frustrated because all they're allowed to do at work is work. You know, when they're not allowed to spend time with their colleagues and break bread and do kind of little side projects for their community or for their colleagues, that's when they get really, really pissed off, isn't it? When they're just seen as a human resource or a, a cog in a wheel. Yeah, and I think it's a big debate, isn't it? That lots of HR people are really kind of torn by this phrase human resources because they see humans as more than a resource. But that's kind of the job title at the moment. Like community managers hate the title community management. <laughs> we should all get to choose our own titles. And alas, here we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it, you know, it's like tomato, tomato, it doesn't really matter, but in it kind of another way kind of does. But yeah, like language matters. Language matters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We said we'd kick off with three questions, David, and we've kind of deep dived. Tony, what, <laughs> what was question number two before we find ourselves four hours deep on this? Yeah, I think it's quite a good segue, actually. I was going to ask you, 
if that's what it is, why does human connection matter? Give us your thoughts on that. I think we covered a lot of it, right? It's it's everything. <laughs> For humans, human connection is everything. For the planet, it doesn't matter. Right? You know, if humans go extinct, the planet will go on and the, the universe will continue and doesn't matter. But for the purpose of humans, and when we talk about humans, what are we talking about? Well, we could talk about survival. How are we solving things like global warming? How are we solving things like changing birth rates? How are we changing how we react to disease like COVID uh, or viruses? Like how we collaborate and work together to solve the world's greatest problems is, you might say, pretty important. That's the macro level. And then the micro level is we talked about the impact on your health, the impact on your well-being, your ability to connect with other people and feel a sense of belonging and to reduce loneliness. Like I've been thinking a lot about the concept of social fitness, where, you know, we look at our mental fitness, we look at our physical fitness, but we don't really talk about our social fitness. We don't talk about exercises you can do to improve your social health. There's not a whole lot of education out there on how to introduce yourself to somebody, how to answer the phone, how to form better connections in your life, what it means to feel lonely and the different ways that loneliness shows up in someone's life. One thing I learned in my research so far is that loneliness is really complex and there's many forms of loneliness. It's not just having friends, right? And so helping people understand these things and understand loneliness, understand how it's impacting their life and giving them tools to be able to improve it on that micro level is I think going to be hugely impactful for reversing this, you know, quote unquote, loneliness epidemic that we're in and navigating this really uncertain future where for millions of years, humans only had to focus on food, just finding food with their tribe. And now food's taken care of for a lot of people in Western society, not everywhere in the world. A lot of our problems are solved by the government, by society, by larger systems. And so now we're trying to form connections with each other where we don't actually need each other that much. And we have social media where we're more connected than ever before. And yet somehow it makes us feel so much more alone. And so I think these are some of the biggest questions of our generation and things that for the foreseeable future are just going to become bigger and bigger question marks and issues that we have to navigate. So I think that's why human connection is important. I love that phrase right at the very start there, David, where you said human connection is everything. And yet, does it feel to you that as a species, we're trying to splinter people off? You know, so we've now all got individual phones we carry in our pocket and we can buy food with it. We can connect with it. We can talk to people. We can take photographs. Does it feel like, you know, maybe technology or what we're doing is actually doing the opposite of human connection where deconnecting people as a society? I think like everything else, it's nuanced, it's complex. So on one hand, yes, I think a lot of human connection comes from feeling needed, feeling useful. And so, yeah, when we relied on the people in our community to provide us with food, to provide us with shelter, to provide us with safety, there was a very strong sense of community that comes from that. And we are no longer needing each other for a lot of these things, right? We don't need our neighbor to protect us. We need the police department to protect us. We don't grow our own food. These farms that we never see or connect with grow our food. We're many layers removed from the source of the things that we need. 
and technology just continues to do that, right? Like it continues to automate and optimize systems that allow us to coexist at these large and large scale societies, right? Like that's why the agricultural revolution was so big. You know, when we had the agricultural revolution, you might think, okay, we have this many people on the planet and we were surviving with the amount of food that we had. Great. We have this agricultural revolution. We can provide all this food and everyone will live in abundance. Well, no, population just grows to meet the supply of food. And now we could never survive without our agricultural system at this number of people. So the systems are built in a way that's sustaining the size of our communities, of our societies, of our groups. And that's just going to keep happening, right? And so the most recent ones, AI, questions that you might ask your mother mm -hmm. or your friend, you can now go ask a bot. We're seeing people in China turn to AI, like huge numbers for relationships, for like romantic relationships, as opposed to turning to other humans for romantic relationships. And so once again, we're seeing technology replace a lot of the things that we rely on each other for. That's a lot of the negative. You know, there are positives, right? So if you look at social media as an example, okay, so there's a lot of negatives in social media. We compare it to each other a lot more. We get these influencers who project a perfect life that makes us feel more isolated and alone. There's trolls. There's a lot of negativity online. There's a lot of toxicity, personal attacks, spam, lots of bad things. But wow, has the internet been a beautiful thing for helping people find community in a way that they were never able to before when they were limited by just the people around them. And I had this experience at a very young age. When I was in middle school, I really struggled to find community on a local level. Both my parents were immigrants. We didn't have an established community. I was, I was born in the U.S. a year after they moved to the U.S. So we had no established network, no established community. I struggled a lot to find connection and community. But like when you're a kid, that's your whole world. That's your bubble. All you have are the people around you. And if you go farther back in human history, all you had was your tribe. Forget your whole town or city. All you had was the 100, 150 people around you. That's it. So if those people didn't accept you, you couldn't go find another community, right? And so if you feel different in the space you're in, the internet created this opportunity for people to find any, people like them anywhere in the world. So in theory, it should have helped us reduce loneliness in that way. And I think for many people it did, right? If you were the only gay person in your community and those are all the people that you could find around you, but then you could go online and find thousands and thousands of people in a community that are also having a similar experience of not being able to come out to their family, not feeling comfortable in their home, but that gave you a safe space to have these conversations. That's incredible, right? That's something we didn't have before. And Back to my story in middle school, I turned to the internet. It was video games for me, but that's where I found my closest friends when I was really young. I was online every day for hours and hours on end on IRC, playing video games, connecting with people who were, you know, had had no I've never met in my life. You know, I, I didn't know who they were personally, but I felt very connected. I felt very accepted in that space. And it's where I started to feel a sense of belonging that I couldn't find on a local level. So that would be when you became the Tony Hawk's pro skater for one of the best plays in the world, right? <laughs> yeah, that was that was my game of yeah, choice. Yeah, yeah, It's really funny, you know, because one of my children is uh, constantly online playing games with his mates. So he lives in a different part of the yeah. country to his friends. And I, of a certain age, I kind of look at that and go, 
that sounds like the worst thing in the world. You know, he hasn't got any mates and he's online. But the way you've just described it, it is, and I love that phrase, it's a beautiful thing because his mates are like in the room with him, I guess, and they're just interacting rather than playing a board game, they're playing a video game online. And they have, that's been really helpful to kind of understand that you can connect online in a beautiful way, just a different way to the way that we used to as, as kids. Yeah, you can. I don't know what the answer is if like, if you rely solely on that, if that's going to really provide you with the full level of belonging and connection that you need. There was an interesting study I read recently about how more so than any sort of deep connection with a friend, it's actually your portfolio of interactions and connections that is a stronger predictor of happiness. And so what that meant was, yeah, not just a friend, but are you also connecting with strangers on the street? Like, do you say hi to your neighbors? Mm -hmm. Are you connected in your workplace? Are you connected with your family? Do you have a loose community where you can be more passively involved? And so it's this portfolio, this diversity of different kinds of connections that people actually crave. So I think, you know, and even looking at my experience in hindsight, I was certainly finding connection belonging there, but I don't think it would have been enough. I don't think it was enough. I still craved that in-person interaction. I still wanted to be a part of sports teams. I still wanted to, to have other forms of connection. So I think if you're looking for connection and belonging in one place, you're always going to be left needing more. You talk about coming from different communities and having different backgrounds there, David. I moved to the UK when I was 17 to go to university from Ireland. And, and I've been here ever since. So I've lived in Britain longer than I lived in Ireland. That was my dad's exact story. He moved from Ireland to England when he was 13. Yeah. <laughs> or 15, something like that. And then you never go back. But I, what, what it does, of course, is you, it gives you a perspective. It gives you a rear view mirror. And if I hadn't left Ireland, I wouldn't know so much about Ireland because it's only by not being there, kind of you notice things. And one of the big differences I've noticed between Britain and Ireland is in Ireland, intergenerational mm. relationships yeah. are much more common. So when I was younger, I knew people who were two generations mm. older than me and I would stop and I would talk to them and, and we would have conversations. And it was only when I came to Britain and, you know, it's not a criticism of my own kids because they're a product of their environment. I think other than their grandparents, I don't think mm. they really do know people who are 45, 50 years older than them. And I think that's a, a missing piece of their personal jigsaw puzzle. I, I love that. Yeah, I think about that a lot. It's something majorly missing in Western society is our connection to our elders to, you know, what a loss, right? Like the amount of connection and wisdom and perspective that you can gain from talking to people of different generations. And it goes both ways, right? Talking to younger people. And every time I go to my, like my wife has a big family and she is one of her cousins that I'm close with is of, of the Gen Z generation. And I, every time we hang out, I'm just like, I have so many questions for you. <laughs> it's like a research project. Cause I'm just like, tell me everything. Like what's, what's cool. What's not cool. What's everyone doing? What matters? What doesn't matter? And you just learn so much if you look either way. And so, yeah, I think there's some interesting programs and communities out there that are, you know, attempting to make connections like that. I actually participated in a community called The Grand, which is a really cool program. And they do a bunch of different um, coaching, like group coaching and just different experiences around different topics. And so when we were about to have our first kid, we went to a grand session about being a parent before we became parents. And the whole premise that they had was to bring someone from an older generation that would lead a group of people in a younger generation. So us millennials with, you know, some boomers or 
people from older generations that would lead the conversation. And it was fascinating to be able to ask very open questions and very direct questions and and learn from them. And I think that's that's a really cool thing. Even something I've experienced, we recently moved from the city to the suburbs and I'm finding I'm, I'm interacting with a lot more generations because in the city, it was like primarily uh, younger people that I would intersect with for the most part. And in a, in the suburbs, it's people from all different generations. Some people have been living here their whole life. And and that, that's been a nice change. And and do you think, David, that that experience as a, as a young boy led you to be really interested in human connection? Is that your kind of journey to it? I think so. I think every community builder I've ever spoken to has some story of struggling with loneliness at a young age that led them to both have empathy for people who are experiencing loneliness and want to solve for it and also just sparked a curiosity and uh, and forced forced us to learn, right? If If it didn't come easily to us, then we had to learn with a practice, whereas people maybe that found it easy, never had to really think about it very methodically. And so didn't continue to develop and improve how they understand that over time. And so for me, it's, I think I've always been a people person, even when I struggled with loneliness and I, I like was treated poorly by people because I was desperate for connection. So I ended up joining groups that were not doing the most savory of things during the day. And I, you know, was forced into fist fights. I was, I was like put into situations that are deeply uncomfortable for me and, and probably had a, had a big impact on who I am today, but I've always still loved people. I like, I love connecting with people. I love all different kinds of people. I can talk to anybody and find something interesting to connect around. I've always just been really a, a people person. I enjoy that connection. And I just also have always had a curiosity. I, I like solving this puzzle, even though we'll never get full answers. I like the endless exploration of trying to understand why do people connect and how do they connect? And I, I just think it's fascinating. I read a quote on, might have been your website or on an article that you wrote. And when I read it, I thought, oh, that's interesting. But now you've spoken, I think I understand the quote better. And it's a quote by Ivan Cash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's the one about, you know, any attempt at human connection inherently involves risk. Yes. And I think what you just talked about there is a really great example of that, isn't it? Is you reaching out as a young boy trying to be accepted and being forced into fist fights. That just sounds terrifying. That was, yeah, that was big risk. <laughs> I was taking big risks at that stage. Yeah, it, it was at points terrifying is a word I would use to describe it. And, I would put myself out there. I wouldn't be invited to things. I wouldn't be included in groups. And so I would just set out on my bike and just, you know, try to engineer serendipity, right? Try to, uh, oh, wow, you guys are here too. That's cool. What a coincidence. You want to hang out? <laughs> and uh, sometimes they'd let me and sometimes they wouldn't. And I'd, you know, go home and cry. I'd just literally sit there crying because it, it was a real struggle for me. And I, I do think, yeah, I think, any sort of human connection is an act of bravery today, even though today I'm much more capable of connecting with people. I'm very grateful to have extremely close, just wonderful friendships. I'm very close to my family. Like I'm, I'm in a unique stage of life where we just moved back to New York and I don't really have many friends here. So I have aspects of life that I'm lonely in now. 
Um, but I feel confident that I'm going to be able to solve for that. And I feel like I have the tools for it. But even now, it's it always feels like a risk. It always feels a risk to say hi to another dad in the playground, mm. uh, to follow up and ask if they want to go grab a drink sometime, to go to an event where you don't know anybody. Uh, you, there's always a risk of being turned down, of getting that pain of loneliness, of being excluded again, of not belonging. Anytime you're connecting with someone, you are putting yourself in a new social situation. There's fear there. Unless you're a sociopath, there's fear there. And so where there's fear, it requires bravery. And I think that I can't imagine a single social situation that doesn't require some bravery to step into. It is interesting, isn't it, that we stop ourselves from doing something that 99 times out of 100, we would get a lot of enjoyment mm -hmm. out of. It's very rare that you'd go up to somebody and take a breath, have a conversation, and then at the end of it go, I wish to hell I hadn't spoken right. to that person. That was just, and then that was just, there was yeah. nothing good in that. There's, there's always something that you take yeah. away, isn't there? You always come away with something that's good, but I don't know. We we just we we're reluctant to do it, even though we know that we're ninety nine times out of hundred we're going to get something good out of it. I didn't tell you this joke. I saw somebody when we came back from Birmingham about two weeks ago, who was pretty famous at a service station. He was an Irish actor, and I didn't go and say hello to him. And I wish to God I had. And I pretended it was because I didn't want to disturb him because he was having a KFC, and the last thing he wanted was somebody disturbing him. But it was actually, if I'm being honest, I didn't want him to look at me and roll his eyes and go, can I not even just have a chicken right. burger without somebody annoying me? But he probably would have gone, well, it's great to see you sit down. What's the crack? Do you know, I wonder what the solution is. Do we always just need to have the mindset that you've kind of pre-decided to have the conversation? You're always going to have it. And then you look at the balance sheet at the end and you think, I'm usually going to be up. You know, I, I don't have a great answer for this, but it's something I'm very interested in now and learning a lot about, you know, how do you find bravery? <laughs> I don't know. How do you take risks? I think it's it's something that can be practiced. You know, I've seen people do a challenge, you know, get told no once a day for 30 days. So it forces you to ask for things that you don't feel comfortable asking for. I like the idea of challenges because I like rules like that. They're like, all right, I've already committed. My rule is I'm going to say hi to one stranger a day. And if they say nothing back, that's okay. If they're rude back, that's okay. If they're kind back, awesome. But you go in knowing that like these are all the potential outcomes that can happen, but I've already committed. I'm doing this challenge, right? It's like the same thing that works with fitness. Like, all right, I'm going to do 50 push-ups every day for 30 days is a lot easier than endlessly, right? And so you could do a challenge. Um, I don't know. I, I think there are people who are starting to create programs to help people with this, right? Like the the Soul Cycle founders just launched a new company where they facilitate these group sessions to help people connect on a more deep level. So I think a lot of the time it can be putting yourself in actually, yeah, here's a good answer. Here's one thing I've learned is that um you can put yourself in positions for serendipity to occur. And I think serendipity is a really interesting topic that I did some research for this article on. And I realized that like serendipity is kind of also part of everything. Like you can kind of draw this, this unexpected line through all of your interactions. And serendipity can be you pass someone on the street or you happen to see a piece of information that's really interesting to you. But I think you could put yourself in the position where serendipity is more likely to occur. 
And so like in the research that I found, some of the things that lead to serendipity, one is you have to be in an unfamiliar place. So if you're only going to places that are familiar, the chance of having a serendipitous connection with somebody is lower, right? If you're only going to your workplace, if you're only going to your home, if you're only going to the same coffee shop, maybe it's it's familiar, so it's safe, but less likely. Also, unfamiliar people. You have to go to spaces with unfamiliar people. So if you're only interacting with the same people in the same time, every day in the same places, less likely that you're going to have serendipity and find new connections. But if you go to a art class, if you go to a run group, I think if you find community spaces where there are unfamiliar people, then you have a greater chance of finding that serendipitous connection. You also want to go in with a social mindset. So I think you can prep yourself mentally before you go. You can give yourself a pep talk and say, I'm going here to connect with new people. I'm going to talk to at least one Mm. new person, right? You just go in knowing what your goal is. And you want to go to places where people aren't busy. So a coffee shop, actually not that good because a lot of people are working, they're busy, they're doing something else. That's why events and these kinds of more social hobby-based experiences are good or going to conferences because everyone there is like off work. They're not focused on something else right now. They're open to being social. So putting yourself in these environments where people are social, they are not busy, there's a good chance you have something in common with them but they're unfamiliar. You don't already know them and it's in an unfamiliar place. I thought that was a cool way of thinking about, you know, if you're you're looking for new connections with people, finding those kinds of environments can be a good way to do that. And with your um, Irish heritage, let me just share an interesting story. I don't know if it's true or not, but I once read somewhere that somebody had done some research on all these kind of cultural stereotypes around all different nationalities. One of the ones they looked at was the Irish being the the lucky Irish. And they go, where's that come from? And they said there's some evidence to suggest that when they say the Irish are lucky, it's because they're, they're very good at popping up in unusual areas. <laughs> yeah. And because they were a nation of immigrants, we, we have different conversations and we go to places, as you say, that we're unfamiliar with and we work with people who we don't know. And because of that, opportunities are created. And then if you're good at grasping them, and then all of a sudden it's go, oh my gosh, they're fierce lucky, aren't they? And we would say, hey, we're not lucky. We're just good at connecting exactly. people. So I think the headline is the whole world, the whole world just needs to be more like <laughs> Irish. I think, I think that's right, Stuart, right? Well, I think the biggest thing to come out of Ireland is Guinness. So for me, it's more Guinness. I will transfer to Ireland tomorrow for no fee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it also helps that I, I was reading some stat about just everybody's at least 5% Irish or something, some joke like that. But there's a stat that a lot of people have some Irish blood in them. And so there's a commonality there, right? If you run into an Irish person on the street... You always hear, especially in the U.S., oh, like, I'm Irish too. And it's just kind of funny because they're probably like 5% Irish, like several generations removed. But it's a point of conversation, right? It gives you an in to start talking to somebody. And that's a lot a lot of the time what we're looking for too is just some commonality, some connection that opens up a line of, all right, well, we can keep talking and develop this relationship deeper. Yeah, there is a greater truth there is that we like people who are like us. So find the areas where we overlap, like our Venn diagram of life must overlap Mm -hmm. somewhere. Find that, have the common ground and enjoy the conversation from there. Exactly. This is a really big question, but I guess one of the reasons we're really interested in talking to you, David, is human connection and the workplace. Do you have any thoughts on either whether human connection is missing in the workplace or what organizations need to do? 
to create more human connection. What what are your thoughts on that kind of conundrum? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Human connection is very complex. And so there are many levels of human connection that may exist in the workplace, but you can look at it through the lens of friendship, right? Like are people actually forming friendships in the workplace? Would they say that the people at work are friends? And then there's collaboration, right? Are they able to effectively work together to achieve outcomes and launch products, you know? There's also connection to purpose, right? And that that's a form of loneliness is when you don't feel connection to some larger purpose that you're all mm. working toward. And on one hand, I think that's important. On the other hand, I think businesses maybe have weaponized that to an extent where they make it about the purpose. And I think people started tying their identity and their social lives too much to businesses who, as we're seeing now in a bear economy, have to make hard decisions sometimes about who gets to stay and who gets to go. And so if you put all of your social eggs in your work basket, that's not a good thing because that job can disappear tomorrow. And it's a transactional relationship. And that's where it gets a little sticky when you start introducing social dynamics into a market where you could say we're all here for the shared purpose and you could call your team a family and maybe people will even believe that. But then the day you have layoffs, that mirage disappears, mm. right? That sandcastle crumbles. And so I think it's important that we invest in connection in the workplace, but with realistic expectations around what kinds of connections are important in the workplace and where we hold boundaries around those connections and how much of our own identity and our own social network we we put into those social spaces. That said, you know, it's everything, right? We said human connection is everything. And so how your employees connect with each other, do your employees feel safe? Do they feel empowered? Do they feel like they can effectively communicate and collaborate with each other? These are all aspects of human connection that the more you can optimize those things, the more I think you'll have a successful business and a place that people value, want to come work at, enjoy showing up every day, wanting to do their best work. I think it's it's everything. Business is human connection. And David, when do you think companies are at their worst? I want to, I want to take a bit of a bleak look at this. You spoke about cults earlier on. Do you hear of some companies who, you know, provide everything that you could want? On campus, you know, you don't have to leave. You've got a gym, we've got a barber. You can sleep here if you want to. We will allow you to define yourself as one of our employees. And that becomes your reason for life. Right. In their attempt to do that, are they actually being really unkind and taking away really important parts of their lives away from people? I think so. Yeah. I think they're creating a one-dimensional social world for people where we talked about having a portfolio of interactions and so if the only people you're interacting with are your colleagues, who, again, at the end of the day, you have a transactional relationship with, and you might find friends through work that end up existing beyond work, right? Like some of my closest friends are people that I once worked with, but there's lots and lots of people that I've worked with that at the time, you know, we were like friends, but then as soon as that mm -hmm. job was no longer the, our job, suddenly that friendship really disappeared. I think a healthy company is one that, invests in their employees' holistic life. 
that doesn't try to make the company their entire world and in fact combats that, you know, forces people to go home at five o'clock, forces people to invest in other aspects of their social life and their health because they know that it's not going to last if you make the job their entire life. Yeah, I think that's really important. And from all these conversations, we're trying to make sure we have some kind of takeaways. And I think that's something I'm going to look at. You can see when an employer is healthy, they actually do things which are slightly counterintuitive for the business. They ensure that the person isn't just thinking about the business. They ensure that the person is thinking about the other important parts of their life and not putting so much pressure on them, so much demands on them that, that they're just kind of weighing them down. I remember still listening into a conversation we had with uh, one of our American colleagues who was the, the senior vice president for the human side of business. And somebody asked her a really good question about kind of work-life balance. And, and she was very honest. She said, you've got to remember, the company will never have enough of you. If right. you leave a chink of life, the company will take it. And you've just got to accept that. And we've all got to kind of be aware of that the company is a beast. It will eat you up if you do not put boundaries in place. And I think Personally, we've got to put boundaries in place. And I think good employers try to put boundaries in place to protect the company from themselves. Look, like companies aren't real. <laughs> There's nothing in nature, mm-hmm. nothing in nature that is a company. There's no documents of incorporation that grow on trees. This is an invention. It's an agreement that we have with each other. But these inventions culturally speaking, take on a life of their own. And so we create this invention that violates the laws of nature, essentially, right? The reason we do this, we have this agreement is because if we left it to nature alone, a company would never work. So we create these agreements, we create these contracts, we create this machine. It's a machine, it's it's a beast that doesn't abide by what's best for humans, it abides by what's best for the machine. And so... We have to take care of ourselves as humans. We have to defend ourselves. We have to create those boundaries so that the machine doesn't just gobble us up. And, you know, a lot of the time it's a few people at the top who are creating that specific machine. And for them, it's their whole world. But to expect that of the people working for the company that don't have the same sort of upside and outcomes, I think I spent a lot of my career tying my whole identity to my work and my accomplishment. And I think I'm only now kind of getting to a stage in my life where I'm realizing that that was not a smart move and life is a lot more than your work. But like you said, the company is never going to tell you that. (laughs) Most companies aren't. It's just not how they're designed. It's not what they're optimized for. They're a machine optimized for something specific and you shouldn't expect it to do anything else other than what it's optimized for. Rage against the machine. I, I guess because we're talking about human connection, this probably feels like a good point to say, David, we would like to ask you to leave us with a gift as we close our conversation today. That's right. We'd like you to share with us one essential ingredient that makes up human connection, in your opinion. And so by the time we've spoken to several people, including obviously yourself, we hope to have a list of high quality ingredients that we can share to inspire others to join the human connection movement. So David, over to you. What's that one essential ingredient that you'd like to gift to us as you leave us today? (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking about my answer to this question. And if we're looking for an ingredient as part of a recipe, I think we already decided that the recipe for human connection is just a complete mess. (laughs) You know, the kitchen's a complete disaster after that 
It's got every ingredient in the world all just mash into one. It's probably going to taste terrible. But what I'll share is one thing that I've come to realize both through my own experiences and then hearing from researchers, something that Brene Brown talks a lot about, which is that to find belonging, you have to first belong to yourself. And so it's somewhat counterintuitive to the idea of human connection being all about connecting to other people. But I find and I've found that it's really hard to find true belonging, true connection, unless you've really connected with yourself, unless you've really learned to love and accept yourself. Because if you don't have that, you're seeking acceptance from the outside and you start changing who you are and adapting in order to accomplish that acceptance. But if you start from a place of acceptance and self-love, you start to draw in people around you who accept you for who you are, not for who you are changing yourself to be. Wonderful. Thank you for that, David. Thank you very much. That is the end of today's Human Connection Journey podcast. Uh, a huge thank you to you, David. Thank you to our listeners for joining us today. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation and hope you'll come and join us next time as we continue our quest to better understand human connection. 